it's very similar to music. Opening up an email or opening up a CD or vinyl and or someone saying, this is cool, check it out. That's a cool pause. That's a cool moment to be like, oh shit, what am I about to hear? The same thing with games. What am I about to play? What journey is this thing going to put me on? Hello and welcome to Why Button, the podcast that asks why we care about video games. I'm your host, Kyle Starr. On this show, I interview creators, enthusiasts, journalists, and media personalities about their origins with video games, what keeps them so interested in the medium, and what excites them about the future. On this episode, I interview Tom Mullen, music business extraordinaire and founder of Washed Up Emo. Now, you may be asking yourself, what does the music business or emo have to do with video games? Well, the answer is quite a lot. I've known Tom for about a decade. I started as a fan of the Washed Up Emo podcast, where Tom interviews legends from the many different eras of the emo genre of music. After professing my love for his show, we became quick friends and started talking about how much we love bands like American Football, Saves the Day, Jimmy World, the list goes on. But after Tom learned that I ran the video game blog Zero Counts, it opened the door to a shared friendship of games. More to the point of the show, this interview with Tom opened my eyes to a whole other level of his gaming fascination, how video games have intersected his life working in the music industry, and the similarities he sees between the two mediums. The dude came prepared. Tom Mullen, welcome to Why Button. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me. You got it. Of course. You are, I think, maybe the first sort of like, I mean, you play video games, but you're outside of like the industry and the video game podcasting sphere. And you and I go back a ways, uh, specifically around music and podcasting. Um, but I figured, what the hell? I know you have an interest in this space. Uh, I should get I should get you on the show. Before I go any further, though, I, I would love for you to sort of maybe tell your story and, and tell people who you are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think my gaming stuff has overlapped on professional side multiple times. Ooh. So it's fun. not necessarily, yeah. So I think, I mean, it might be a music thing, but there's a lot of times that video games have sort of overlapped um, with my professional life, um, which wasn't just like, oh, I'm playing. It's There's been a lot of business stuff with it as well, which has been fun. And I've been able to be coherent in my thoughts of um, with them. So yeah, no, I've been doing marketing um, in music, in the industry, label side, agency wide for 20 plus years, podcasting at all the record labels. I brought it to all three major labels when I was at each of them. So those were really fun. And then since started in 2007, I was doing washed up emo as just an, I was angry. I was in upstate New York. I was angry that no one was talking about bands that I thought were really important. And in 2007, there wasn't as much of a way to find them. So I just started a blog spot and started talking about bands that I really missed and talked about. And it's evolved over the years into a podcast for the last almost 11 years now, book series, a lot more stuff, you know, from social media and things like that newsletter. But it's been really, really fun. I've been able to meet my heroes and it's helped me professionally as well because there are artists that I've worked with that know the show. There are artists that know the books and it's been great to have, you know, another thing outside of work when work should not be your only thing that you're uh, tied to or that you connect to. So it's always been a nice release for me. So, but yes, music, 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 but very yeah. few people know the nerdiness of uh, video games. I mean, you, you've you been steeped in, I, I don't want to leave the music space quite yet. Uh, you've been steeped in the music world uh, for quite a long time. Can you speak specifically about the different maybe roles and places you've been and how you've sort of interfaced and interacted with a lot of the, you know, the artists that you have befriended today? I'll do it quickly because it is 20 plus years, but I think sure, I, yeah. I, I think I know how to answer it. I think I know what you mean. Like basically the, you know, in college, I quickly realized that I pretty much went to a school that I knew had a radio station. I know that, 
you know, my parents can, I can tell a thing, but they had a major I wanted. They had a radio station I could hang out with. And I knew that I could get a show because it was a small enough school. That was my decision to go to this specific school. And it was a small school where I could meet the teachers and know their name because that was important for me. I couldn't do a big school. I would get lost and I would fail out. I need to be a small school. Hmm. And I went to the radio station and I realized quickly that I was going to have a show in six months because no one knew about the genre that I was talking about. And not that I was cool, just there's millions of genres. So I just happened to know one. So I got in the station really quickly and, and realized that I could meet these bands because I could I could make an excuse to meet them by asking for a radio ID. Huh. Do you know what that means? I, I Yes, kind of. But please tell our listeners. So basically, like, it would be instead of a full-on interview, which people would say maybe say no to because we were a smaller radio station. But the funny thing about our call letters was that one of the largest radio stations, college radio stations in the country is WSOU. And that's at Seton Hall University, which is broadcast to New York City. Okay? So I knew that. And that I would say when I would call up labels, I would say the call letters slow so that they would be intrigued because ours were was W-S-O-E. So I could go slower and say, yeah, I'm from WSO. And then sometimes they would just pass me along because they thought I was WSOU, but I was WSOE. Slowly, I built up a relationship with all these people because I got them to pick up the phone (laughs) and befriended labels, befriended labels that never serviced records before because I had been either a fan of them or aware of them. And one of those I ended up working for. But that's how I started to meet these people. And then when they would come through town, it was hard to get an interview because we weren't a big station. Once they got through, and they realized I was kind of joking about the call letters. So I would just say, can I get an ID? And that was literally just making sure that you went up to the band and they were aware. And sometimes I would just do it unannounced, but it would be like, hey, this is Jim from Jimmy Eat World and you're listening to Natus on Against the Grain on WSOE 89.3 FM. That's all they had to do. Yeah. And it would take seconds and I would meet them. And that's how I started to make relationships with a lot of these bands. And actually, funny enough, an album that came out 24 years ago today, Vertical Horizon. Do you remember that record there? I think it's Everything You Want record. I don't. They were like quintessential, like 1999 um, rock. But they. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I know who we're talking about now. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't just about the punk. This band, Vertical Horizon, came to school, and you know the, those campus shows where they pay them a crap load of money? Oh, sure. Yeah, we had Fan of Planet come to UCI, and that's, exactly. I imagine yeah. it was the same thing. Yeah. yeah. So they paid this band a ton of money. They came. No one saw the show. And I wrote an article in the next weeks, because I wrote for the newspaper. I wrote an article basically being like, you guys have no idea when independent artists come here. They were on RCA, but they were super small. I said, you have no idea this band is going to be massive next year and you missed out and you need to understand that your campus and your school brings opportunities before you might realize it. Like I got on a soapbox. I mean, they broke huge. Sure. And they have always hooked us up since then. Because they saw the article, the, the newspaper reprinted it after they became like number one on adult contemporary radio. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it was, they came to the radio station, we hung out, we got IDs, but that was enough just to give them 15 seconds. And so that was a, just a really good microcosm of taking something of what I had and been able to show worth to them. We are not friends with the artist. That is the thing that I think a lot of people miss that, oh, I want to be friends with them and text with them or whatever. No. 
You're there to work for them and they will remember you if you work for them, not just try to like glob on um, to whatever thing they're doing. And so I've always taken that approach that I'm, I'm there to work for them. Yes, there's friendships that arise, but I treat it with respect. Sure. Yeah. And that's that they're going to pay that back. I'm sure. Again, for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with Washed Up Emo, you mentioned you know, you're going to be given a show because you care about a genre that nobody else is aware of. What are some of the bands that you, uh, that, that sort of you were focused in on at the time? I, what was maybe the, was it emo? And was that the, was the focus of the show emo or was it more alternative rock specifically? It actually started with hardcore. It was more of like a hardcore punk. Um, and then emo was just a subset of it that I ended up playing a lot because those bands intersected. Those yeah. bands would be on the same tours, the same lineups. And so it's slowly, the show was called Against the Grain. And then I had also had a loud rock show. So I was the metal programmer. I was the hard rock and, and metal programmer for the radio station as well. So I knew the metal world as well. So those were two genres. But it was really, it was the hardcore punk emo show was more of my love. And the metal show was like more official. But I got to meet so many people because those labels had some of overlapping bands. Equal Vision had hardcore bands, but also like alt alternative bands. So that that was the uh, those 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 were the initial shows that I started to meet people, go to conferences, and and really make a name for myself. Which ended up leading into my first job in the industry, which was partly music related because I did a website for a band, and that band was friends with someone at this company that they started. Uh, an agency. And so that was my first job. But it it started out of me doing a website for a band that didn't even know I was doing it. I just did it. And it led to me to my first job. So every time I've done something that I wasn't told, or done something that I did out of passion has led to the next opportunity. And I didn't do it because I thought I was going to be rich. I did it because I knew that I wanted to do it. And they've always led to opportunities because it comes across a little bit more earnest than like, I'm just chasing what's, what's hot. I've never done that. I could be a lot more successful if I did that, but I can't. <laughs> right. What are, uh, what are some of the bands that come to mind about when those, you know, during those early days, you mentioned Jimmy world a second ago, but like what represents that, whether it's hardcore or I can't metal. believe you're asking me this. I have um, to, it's, is this band emo.com is very helpful for this as well. <laughs> if anyone wants to double check their band, um, I did that website as a joke and it, people think it's real. It's hard to mention bands. I have, I have like 17 stacks of vinyl, uh, records next to me. It's very hard to record, but I would say, you know, if it's if it's if it's punk or emo, Promise Ring, Jimmy Eat World, um, Texas, uh, Mineral, Sunny Day Real Estate, uh, a lot of those sort of I would say 93, 94, 95 stuff. And the reason why I say that is so many of those bands, when the internet hit, they kind of got left aside. Mm -hmm. Either the label didn't put themselves on streaming or they had broken up before it, web experiences or websites were sort of a mainstream thing. They might've been a message board associated with them that was alive, but these were sort of, I, I think bands that were sort of left for dead. And I kind of, I assimilated to those um, deeply. Thank you. Uh, again, trying to paint a picture for our, our listeners, but I also know how <laughs> challenging <laughs> random on the spot questions like that are. No, 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 it's fine. I just, uh, I don't want to, is this band emo.com will be very helpful for anybody that wants to figure out what I'm into. Yes. Hilarious website and useful website as well. It's I, very I, useful. I, yes. 
There's even a shortcut for it. Yes, there. You and I collaborated on a uh, on a, a little shortcut, just a uh, iOS shortcut to to pull that up as you were listening to music. Does it but still I, work? Have you have you played with it yet? I have. Or it, it still we works. did this years ago. Okay, it's, it still works. Right. The, okay, I'll 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 say this. There are there are eras to emo, and there's a popular one that's called the third wave which was on the radio, on MTV, your jock friend that happened to stop by your sister's house, he listened to it. That was the third era. There are two eras before it. The first wave and the first wave was in the 80s through the early 90s. The second wave is mid 90s through the 2001. And then the third era, I said, almost said something else, was 2001 through about 2009. And then there's the revival era, which is 09 to like 12, 13. And now we're in the fifth wave, which they're even weirder than the revival, which I love. They're so weird. And that is uh, the fifth wave right now. So we are in the fifth wave. So whenever someone says to you, oh, emo's back, it's always been here. It just wasn't hitting you in the face. Right. And uh, there's a lot of bands right now that are hitting you in the face. And that's fantastic. I just hope you check out uh, the other eras or what's happening right now, because there's a lot cooler stuff than you and I sitting in an apartment or your house. Um, There's a cool basement show happening that we are not invited to. Yeah, it's like that. You know, growing up, there were the the ethos or like that the culture around it for me felt like yeah, basement shows or um, you know you'd go to I, I in my town growing up I didn't really have like a solid record store I'd go to Best Buy and hope to God that they had something that I listened to there or that people that were talking about around school um, or people who you know maybe went and saw a show in San Francisco or something and came back and said oh my God this band opened up for this other band and they were amazing but you can't find the record anywhere because these mainstream outlets aren't going to carry it so again without those record stores that you know more niche record stores or something in the East Bay and Berkeley or something like that I wasn't able to find that sort of content but uh, you know you, you sort of believe that that like that weird niche kind of was our our own time and place but truly it probably still permeates it still carries on like absolutely um, like you said there are those basement shows uh, but now we're old men and we don't you know we're not we're not aware of nobody's inviting us to those uh, i mean i'm definitely still getting emails i'm definitely still getting emails of stuff that's going on but i it's i'm i'm finding it out way later than you know what normal what i would have been in my 20s or yeah. you know during during high school or something but i do i love it and i'm still excited about opening an email or opening a link from someone that shares me a record. I've had a lot of really cool opportunities to help bands and it's been rewarding as hell because me being able to say this band's really cool and people checking them out, that's all that matters. Yeah, totally. Um, let's fast forward a little bit past, uh, past your early days in radio. And I mean, that obviously just carried us into the the email realm, but more about your continued career in music. Uh, I know I'm going to try to intersect this at some point, unless you beat me to it with what you said earlier, that, that you did have some interaction or interfacing with the video game world through your career uh, in music. And I didn't know that. I'm very curious about that. So if you don't mind, carry us on from the radio into, uh, into you getting acquainted with labels, joining labels and, and then where we go from there. Yeah, totally. So the one of the great opportunities I had in college was being able to talk to label people. That was my connection. One of these people was this guy, Dan, and he was an intern at Earache Records. They put out metal records. They put out stuff like Morbid Angel. And uh, anyone wants to be on a metal podcast, I can totally do that. Everyone thinks the emo guy can't do that. I can. And he and I found out that we both liked hardcore punk emo stuff. And so we started trading tapes and we did that for a while. And then he left and he started working at Equal Vision. And this was in like the 2000 or something. And I was in New York working at another indie label. And he was like, one day we'll work together. And people say that to you all the time. And it's baloney. 
Um, and uh, I swear it's fine. Okay, it's bullshit. <laughs> and um, so years, probably 2003, 2004, I was done with this label that I was working at. I was doing digital at the time and my radio job. I was doing radio as my first gig. And he called me and was like, hey, there's a marketing position. Do you want to move to Albany? And um, so I did. And because I got to work at my favorite label and I realized there were things and connections that I had made from New York that I could use. And I started marketing was one job, but I did about seven things. And one of them was licensing. I did radio promo. I did video promo. I used to bring tapes down to MTV and play them for people and get stuff on MTV and Fuse. It was, I was doing a lot, tour marketing. But one of the things was licensing. And I really liked putting music to different things. I had success mm -hmm. with commercials at an indie label. And I was on a, I was at a conference of CMJ and I did not know this person, but I went to the conference and it was about licensing. And there were all these people with business cards walking up to this guy from Activision. And I had was familiar with the previous Guitar Hero and I was familiar with how music affected people's listening, hanging out with my cousins because they all knew songs based on video games and not anything else. Tony Hawk, Madden, that kind of stuff. And so I just, on a whim, I still remember wa wanting to walk away before I got up to him. But I didn't. And I said, hey, I know you're super swamped. People have business cards throwing at you. I work at this punk label, Equal Vision. I think we have some cool stuff. Can I keep in touch? He was a huge Equal Vision fan. Yes. And so yes. he was like, he was like, hell yeah, we can. And we stayed in touch. And long story short, he was at Activision and he had told me about Guitar Hero 3. And I said, I just heard this song by a band, Fall of Troy, FCP Remix. Would you, would you be open to putting it in the game? And he told me on the phone, he's like, dude, the game's done. Oh, we have, we no. have, we have no more slots. We have no more money left. Like it's just, it's just too late. I didn't take no for an answer. Have you ever heard this story? Have I ever told you this story? You haven't, but I'm dying because I know that song. And that seems like the Dragon Force before, before Dragon Force, you know, like that was like the big song, the big, I'm just it, thinking about like the palm muted, like riff, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Like super fast. Like, I'm I mean, I've, I heard, I heard that song and I was like, this has to be in Guitar Hero. Now this is before Guitar Hero was huge. This yeah. was before. So two, two issues. One, I needed to overnight a CD because um, there we, there were, the internet wasn't like capable of like handling something like that. So I call, I said, Hey, do me a favor. What if I just overnighted you the song? And I said, I promise you when you listen to this, you're going to call me and put it in the game. I said this to someone at like a giant company, like, who am I? But I, I'm honest to God. That's what I said. So I overnighted the CD. He called me the next morning, which was West Coast time. Was been, it might have been like afternoon East Coast. And he goes, okay, I'm going to put it in the game. But I have one issue. I was like, what? He's like, we have no money. I was like, I, I can figure that out. And so I got off the phone and I, I went to the owner and I said, I'm going to get this song into the biggest game. It's going to be the biggest game. And no one heard about Guitar Hero. Guitar Hero 2 had happened, but it kind of came and went. Sure. He was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, please. And I got the GM involved, Dan, who was the guy at Intern at Ere, who worked there. And I was like, Dan, believe me, this is going to be the biggest game. Then I had to convince the band. I got yelled at by the management. I got yelled at by the band. And I go, promise me. I was like, I will promise you that this will be the biggest game. And I got so much shit 
I got dirty looks. I got, I can't believe you're doing this. You're cheapening the artist and the brand. Well, we know what happened. And ended up being a massive song. And the first few shows, everybody, you know, was fucking doing the, like the finger shit, um, massive game. And it ended up being, you know, I ended up getting a thank you from the band and also a thank you from the label because it's still obviously, you know, streams of shitload and people found out about the band. And I, I was a small part. I just was doing my licensing job as part of them kicking ass on the road. They, they performed great live. Like it wasn't just like, oh, it got on a game and everything happened. If you went to see them follow Troy, it was like, oh, this is unreal. This is amazing. So that is my sort of entry, you know, in the, in the video game stuff. And I started pitching a lot of stuff to EA. I got a lot of stuff in EA games, um, 2K. I got a lot of stuff in 2K. I'd always loved video games. So it was sort of a great little piece for me to kind of still stay connected to this world and find people that were into like rad music and then be able to sort of I don't know, bring home a thing and be like, this is in NHL, whatever it was, or this is in 2K. Like I was able to help that for these smaller bands. Yeah. Not enough people talk about like music discovery through video games. And yeah, there's the obvious video games like Guitar Hero and Rock Band. And I talked to a previous uh, guest of mine, Naoko, who actually, that's how she got into games is she, her music is actually in one of the, one of the games music she composed for it. And then she was hired on to at harmonics, go listen to the episode if you want to know more about that. But like the, the concept of like certain music discovery, like tons of people played Guitar Hero, tons of people played Rock Band, but there's also like um, some, some friends from uh, high school of mine. Uh, they, they were in a band at the time they were called Holiday, but then they became Eveline and they had a song as like the title treatment in one of the FIFA games. I think it was like, I, I don't know which year FIFA it was, but it was like that title treatment and they blew up because of that, or they got to you know go on massive tours and things because of that song uh, that happened to be the title card for, for FIFA. And I'm trying to think of other examples, rack my brain of other examples of like music discovery through games. Um, I was another episode, this is sort of old you know, old school, but I wasn't aware of the band Erasure growing up. It's not a band that I listened to, but playing a game, like I think it was Robot Unicorn Attack, talking to to previous guest CJ about it. Like that's where I discovered them. And like their music is also amazing. It, you're obviously on one side bringing some of that into games through licensing. But do you, I mean, again, putting you on the spot, do you recall playing any games that you heard something that was like, oh my God, that's, that's incredible. I mean, definitely. I just, I want to re respond to that sort of the, I was able to speak to the person trying to fit the music in a way that I understood what they were trying to do. Sure. Like they could tell me we need this kind of song and we need this type of blah, blah, blah. And I was able to deliver on the small catalog at that indie label. I was able to give them a song that fit or give them a multiple songs, which I felt I was able to speak their language. Mm -hmm. And I think that helps when they're sitting there with all these options. And I used to put, I used to send all my submissions with recommended if you liked selected tracks selected sections of song of the song based on what they were looking for so i made it easy for them and so that was something enjoyable you know for me um for music that i remember hearing i mean it was definitely like chiptune like i i love chiptune i think it's i love i just love chiptune so i probably probably it was the early nes or snes or 64 you know hearing chiptune um even even if it was from you know apple um those early like programs like hearing those notes and sounds and that you could make them as a creator as a musician myself i enjoyed seeing that it was these 
the tones and when they overlapped or worked together, it had this like beautiful sound. And I kind of always loved that. So it was probably early, like, you know, hearing, hearing chiptune. Interesting. The fondness for chiptune is, I think, very interesting to me too. I think when I first heard uh, the band uh, Animanaguchi, Anamanaguchi, however you want to pronounce them, now on polyvinyl, which is really cool. But uh, that band, basically a punk band that has an NES on stage, and it, like hearing those sounds, the first sort of chiptune music I think I had heard. I think it was dirt the through the um, Scott Pilgrim uh, video game, and like just blown away by hearing those sounds again from my childhood. It like shot me back. It's obviously original music, but the 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 sound, like you said, you know, the, the sounds that the NES is producing those old eight bit sounds, it just like changes my world a little bit, you know, and, and brings me right back again to sitting in front of a TV playing those games. Uh, and I think it's a sound for our generation in a weird way. Like again, noises that weren't necessarily prevalent prior to maybe the seventies and definitely the eighties and beyond, you know, I think kids growing up now are going to hear those noises and think of them as those sounds of the seventies and eighties. But we, that's like a unique sound that, that we got to hear and, and, and experience when it was, had first come to life. Right. And so we, yeah. we will always associate that with our childhoods and like this really special moment. Right. Yeah. I mean, definitely like, I mean, I always joke with some people like you could, I could have the worst case of Alzheimer's and dementia, but if you play like the drill man stage from Mega Man four, like I'll probably understand that you're someone's around me. It's ingrained like that. And I think the repetition, that's the one thing that I, I felt there, there's a lot of great music now in games and especially if it's we're talking sports ones, right? You talk about the title screen or load screens, you're going to hear the songs rotating. But for something about something that you play and you have to turn it off and start again and it just becomes this repetition contra, right? You know, everyone knows those opening sounds or and so those are those are probably the when I started to understand like repetition from like a pop standpoint too. From, from like a writing standpoint, um, how simple those songs sound was also really influential. Yeah, it, it takes a lot to create something that is repetitive and by design needs to be repetitive because you don't know how long a player is going to play this and not get irritating. Like the compositions, the early compositions that were really great, let's just use Super Mario Brothers, for example, like an iconic theme that you're always, you can hum to yourself at any moment. Everybody knows and it never gets irritating. At least not for me. Maybe there's some folks out there who can't stand mm -hmm. listening to the Super Mario Bros. theme over and over and over, but like so iconic, but not something. And it was just drilled into you constantly over and over and over and over, but just somehow never got fatiguing, um, at least to me. So, and I think that's a very special art, right? To, to build something, to create something that can be looped endlessly without just driving you insane. Totally. God, where do we go from there? Uh, now I just want to dig into like your childhood and growing up with games. Like you talk about chiptunes and I want to know where it all started for you. Like what is your earliest memory with, with games? Yeah, I was definitely, um, I remember from a console, there's console and computer. Cause I think those yeah, overlap sure. a little bit for me, console, the, the Atari 2600. I remember, I don't know who, I don't know if we got it as a hand me down or someone gave it to us, but it was, there was a bunch of games and I remember playing those and being really stoked and, and loved it. And then at the same time, 
uh, my dad was a teacher and they, Apple gave discounts to teachers. Mm. And so we always had a computer in the house and the Apple IIe was in the house. And I remember, I remember coding. I remember my dad had a basic book that he bought me and I would just code. And uh, I remember um, being able to make my own game or, you know, there were ways to make really simple like skiing games that you were skiing down the screen. And that was really eye opening and something that I looked at games differently or looked at how things were made. And it's how I started making websites. It's how I, you know, really dove into, you know, what was made. And we also, for some reason, I don't, he was super into it, but we were like part of this like Apple club that met monthly, I think. And it was a bunch of nerds, but we would talk about the latest in games. And my dad would bring me and they would have like freeware, do you remember freeware? Do you yeah, remember that yeah, term? Sure. So this was like BBS era, like you would talk to your friends online and things, but it was this early like way of acquiring something mm-hmm. that I was really intrigued. Like someone built this, it's free, let me play with it, but I could also look at the source. I could also look behind it and how did they do that or how did they make that? And so my video game thing, you know, also if I'm throwing it in at the same time, the NES, um, obviously the one funny story is that my sister and I bugged my parents so much about it that they gave it to us at Thanksgiving because they couldn't take another month of <laughs> us bugging them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was supposed to be a Christmas gift and they were bugging them so much that they got it. They gave it to us on um, oh my God. Thanksgiving Day. I'm never letting my daughter listen to this. She's going to use that tactic. Uh, <laughs> so, so we, and I still have it. And that's the other thing too. I'm an archivist uh, by trade and I'm a collector. I have every, not the, I think the Atari went I think that went kaput, but I have the original NES that I had, um, most of the games I have, you know, JavaScript stuff to play with Apple IIe. So those were, you know, it was like, a I was using what I could, but what really intrigued me was the repetition of the games from a console perspective. They were simple and enjoyable, the coding and the Apple IIe being able to look at this computer and almost being able to look inside it and not just be thrown stuff was the other piece of my interest of Mm. there's more out there 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 is more to find and do. And it was, uh, it was mind blowing, like not even the internet part, not even the BBS part. This is just like coding on a computer, um, and being able to show like my dad or something that I did something. So those are my earliest memories. I mean, carrying through from there, like throughout your, just call it like grade school, high school, college, like were you still playing throughout these, these chunks of time as you get into like college and radio and all of that? I I think there's, there's a moment for a lot of folks that I'm coming to find through this show that like you drop off of games at some point, like no, no longer becomes like an interest or never was a deep interest um, until you realize it later that it actually is. Um, But do you recall playing games throughout your, your childhood and into adulthood? Oh yeah, totally. I, there was a couple, there's a moment where it didn't like, I never got the game boy because I thought the game boy was lame because you what? couldn't, pl- I'll tell you oh, why heartbroken. No, no, I'll, I'll tell you why I thought game gear was going to be the thing because yeah. it was color and you could play it in the dark. And I never, I thought it was so (laughs) stupid that you had to get like a light for the Game Boy to play it in the dark. I know that they changed that with, with, with the color, but that was my reasoning. There weren't enough games for me to want on the Game Boy that I couldn't get on NES 
and the game gear ended up having, but the game gear was ridiculous in itself. Like my, I don't know how much my parents paid for that thing. I remember trying to buy a game that I thought was going to come out and supposedly it like never came out. And I got it like two months before, like the game gear got discontinued. Like it was like years to wait for that game for some reason. Um, that was before you could, you know, click on Amazon and find out where your shipment was. So, um, definitely played that. I mean, I definitely played, you know, Game Boy. I definitely ended up getting one, but just, it was more, I thought that was going to be the, the one. And then I skipped, um, Super Nintendo because I didn't have money, um, for it. And then I skipped the N64, but my roommate in college had one. Mm. And the funny story about that is everyone played Mario 64, but he only, and I still talk to him. Um, so this is, I'm not making fun of him. If he listens to this, he'll fucking laugh. But he, uh, the joke is he failed out of school because of N64 Mario Kart, oh, because all no. he would do was just like, if you beat his score on like, what was the one, uh, Toad's Highway? Yeah, like if, sure. if, like if you beat his score, he would like not go to class and like try to like oh, beat your no. score. So he lasted a semester and uh, I, that's my memory of N64. So I didn't have to buy one then. So we just played his. And then when I got to New York, PlayStation 2 for sure. A lot of PlayStation 2 games. Really got into Ratchet and Clank early on as a series, which I've been playing for 20 years probably, uh, every single game. Um, skipped the PlayStation 3 and then got the PlayStation 4 because I started working at Sony. And there was oh, discounts. Did they, they force you to buy one or? No, no, no. They, they just had discounts. The <laughs> store at 550 Madison used to be down below. And what was really cool is they would send out a work email. And they would say, hey, down at the store, if there's a discount on X, Y, and Z, and people would just bolt because it was like stupid discounts, like Amazing. stupid. And so there was games I got that way. I do have a really funny story that's kind of mean that maybe someone will get mad. There is a video online for it. Basically, I got an, a chance to buy a PlayStation 3 before I worked for Sony. And I was not, I was not having a lot of money. I worked in Albany. I did not have enough money. I still was playing PlayStation 2 games. We went to the store, 550 Madison, before I worked there, a buddy and I, and we were going to flip it the next morning. <sighs> and we got it in the store. We drove home. But this, this is, don't, don't be mad at me because there's, there's a, there's a, there, there's a, there's a coda to this that makes fun of me more than who, what we just did. Okay. What we did was, is you know how we, you'd wait at like a Best Buy or like a Walmart, like waiting yeah, to sure. buy it at a midnight? So we got it earlier in the evening because we were like one of the selected people to get the PlayStation 3 at the mm -hmm. actual store, like from the head of PlayStation. Like the guy from PlayStation was like handing them to you as you bought it. I also remember um, Charlie Murphy. Remember from, uh, yeah, like he was there and I, I'll never forget this. Eddie's, well, yeah. Eddie's brother? Yeah. Brother? Cousin? Brother? Yeah. Okay. He was there and I'll never forget this quote. He said, I can't wait for PlayStation six because that's when you can have sex. I'll never forget him saying that in front of like all these people at the Sony store. It was unreal. I was like, this is, this was, that was not, that was not scripted. This is, <laughs> this is bad. This is bad. So anyway, we got the PlayStation. We're driving up to Albany. It is maybe 11, 1030 at night. And we drove by and opened up the window and oh, said, no. do you guys want it? Do you guys want this? And they, and you just hear like an, a 200 audible like oh man and then fus and stuff so we drove off and then what was bad is we got greedy and we were going to sell it on ebay and um we waited too long and we only made our money back so yeah. we made fun of someone and we only made our money back but there that was you the go. PlayStation that's, 3. that's your karma you broke even there you go 
So yes, I've always sort of, and then the PlayStation Four for sure, and then definitely um, the uh, Wii U. I had that. I love the Wii U. I love the Wii U for Mario Maker, um, and then the Switch, of course. So yeah, oh, and then PlayStation Five. So yeah, I've kind of kept up, but it's been my money. Whenever I've been able to afford it, I will do it. Like I will sacrifice like food, but if I can't afford it, I wouldn't do it. Then I need to unpack that though. Like, and I know you say that in jest, uh, that, you know, put, put gaming over food, but like, obviously this is something that's, that's been part of your life for a long time since you were a child and you still haven't let it go. Like, and I think a lot of us are the same way. And the purpose of this podcast is really to explore that. Like, what is it that keeps you so interested in, in games? You know, you talk about it from, you know, when you're, you're a kid, um, and seeing the source behind it and the sort of magical experience of, of, you know, early games, but there's some this like compulsion to keep you know this interest uh, that that keeps riding with you throughout your life. Um, for you, what what do you feel like that is? Have you ever considered that or thought about that? Oh my god, all the time. It's <laughs> it's very similar to music. Opening up an email, opening up an email, or opening up a CD or vinyl, and or someone saying, "This is cool. Check it out." That's a cool pause. That's a cool moment to be like, "Oh shit, what am I about to hear?" The same thing with games. What am I about to play? What journey is this thing going to put me on? Or what's the difference in this game that I'm going to be? I never, I never liked scripted TV. I never liked, that's why I like sports because it's sort of unknown unless it's like rigged. Like uh, sometimes things are rigged, but I don't, I love live TV. I loved reality TV early on. I loved cops back in the day, even though I know it's considered propaganda at the time because the police funded it anyway longer story different podcast but um (laughs) i loved that it was that there was an unknown to it and i think the same thing like if i was playing zork as a text game there was an unknown you can't see anything you can just type missed there's no directions you just need to know where to go and i felt that same way with gaming and i think the ability of the experimentation but then also relating back to music the replayability. Like, can I play this again? Does that catch catch me enough that I will play this again? And the same thing with music. Does it catch me again that I see things, I experience things, I learn things while I'm playing? The other thing I was going to say is I love watching people play games. So I was big into Twitch early on. I love GDQ. I love speed running. And so watching great players play a game, maybe that I don't know, but more especially if I know, like if I'm watching Mitch Flowerpower play Mario 3, we've all played Mario 3, but to watch someone do that in a way that they figure out glitches, they figure out tricks, or they help you. Or on the other side, back to like a console way, there's a guy that I watch that does like Kerbal Space Program, Mm -hmm. you know, and watching him build rockets and talk to the people and be able to interact and figure out what works and why it didn't work. I have a lot of like games like that on Switch that I like to do. Game Gear Garage is one, but that's very just like solve this problem. And that reminds me of playing on my Apple IIe or, or, you know, figuring out games on my own. So there's kind of a, the replayability of not just someone professional, which is the same thing as watching an artist to me, music, mm-hmm. playing that song, but also someone learning, like I'm learning something by watching how they play the game uh-huh. is also a big interest of mine. So that's what keeps me interesting. The experimentation of someone doing something that I do as well, and then um, learning about that. And then also um, being able to have that re- replayability and feeling like, 
of um, enjoyment. And also it's unscripted. I think a open world games is something I want to get into as well, but the, uh, there's a balance of it. And I think there's sometimes too much choice, but I do, I didn't, I do enjoy the open world sense of you can do what you want. You can go on your own. And that to me is like, it's not scripted TV. Uh, we can debate on the difference between like open world games, like God of war, that if you go the wrong way, it says, don't forget to look behind the rock. And it's like, no shit. So it's kind of the, I, I, I want, I, I like when like Zelda, like they don't tell you, like I'm playing right. Tears of the Kingdom, like they don't tell you shit. But then last point, I love strategy guides. I am obsessed okay. with strategy guides. I was actually going to show you what I have still. Yes, please do. Hopefully I know what it is. I still fucking have. I mean, I still had Nintendo powers for a very, very long time. I still have top secrets. Oh my God. Which is heart, like basically just like full color, like top secret codes. Remember the yeah, codes? Yeah, yeah. And then even more epic was the game Atlas. The oh, game Atlas man. is like, you know, all the games, like how to get through them and stuff. Because I, I didn't like, I liked like Mega Man. I probably figured out on my own and like spent time sure, and time. Uh -huh. But there's times where I'm like, Oh, I want to figure out, you know, something that I missed. I want to keep enjoying the game instead of being stuck. So that was it. You know, Nintendo strategies, uh, strategy guide just for Mario, Super Mario Brothers 3. It's so, so fu obviously listeners can't see this, but you're holding yeah. up all these old fuck magazines yeah. and guides and it's like they're hanging on by a thread there, but it's just so cool to see those. I, I have a bunch of old retro magazines. I, I mentioned in one of the previous podcasts that there's a subscription service you can sign up uh, for through the Video Game History Foundation and they send you a mystery game uh, magazine from whichever era you want. I get the ones from like the 90s to 2000s. Yeah, uh, so yeah. Nintendo Powers and all these. And I've got a bunch sitting around. It's so cool to look at all that stuff. But to, for you to have those copies that you that hung around and for the, uh, you know, speaking to codes, that's again, something that's come up in this podcast before too, is like that old, you know, yes, we can play the games. The games were fun. They were also terribly difficult. Um, a lot of games were terribly, terribly difficult back in the day. And that was just because of learnings, you know, it, things have gotten much better. Quality of life has gotten much better now that we have learned how to design and, and all of that. But there was all this fast, always fascination with codes, whether it was like enabling you to progress further or get further in the game, um, just make it easier for you. Infinity lives or, or whatever, um, or big head mode. Or I've mentioned before on the show, like an NBA jam, unlocking the mascots. So now you can play with the mascots or you can play as celebrities. Purposefully hidden content, not just like debug codes that would allow probably developers or QA teams to give them infinite lives so they could just play through the game to quality test it. Like these were legitimately placed in there for people to find and enjoy and have fun with, right? Super fun. You're just, yeah, brain, yeah. brain blast moment as you're showing totally. me, showing me yeah. these old strategy those, guides. I mean, the, the Atlas is still completely intact. It's beautifully done. You could only have it for, I, I remember ordering it and I remember it being expensive, but it's still completely intact. And I still buy strategy guides. I had Breath of the Wild, uh, Horizon Forbidden West. Um, I just got the new one. I'm about to get the new one for Zelda. It's more of a, it's, it's, it's similar to, I love books um, and I love my Kindle, but I love, I love books as well. And I think it's almost like a, I don't know, for some reason, I've always loved reading through them. I've had ex-girlfriends look at me and go, what are you reading in bed? And I was like, I've got a war strategy guide. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> 
Um, and it's just, I think, I think it's the, the experimenting and being able to look not just the, how to win, but being able to understand a little bit more behind of how they told, how they're telling that story. I think there's storytelling in those Mm -hmm. books a lot more than people realize. And so, yeah, I, I still have like a stack of these strategy guides and I think they're a lost art. I know they don't do many anymore, but it's something that I, I kind of, Again, it helps with the replayability too, that if you're doing one way and then you start the game again and you want to try a different way, you've learned a little bit more. I don't like this, like play the game on the hardest level and keep going. I liked, uh, that's what I love about the accessibility, like you said, of the infinite lives. I remember the old game genie shit. I like that now there's a set, there's accessibility for people that are, have, have disabilities, you know, or maybe have, there's a guy that plays Call of Duty that literally can only play with his mouth and because he has no he's uh immobile and uh, he, he's from detroit i forget his um twitch handle but like that's amazing like to be able to have those accessibilities and then also now being able to tone down like you know i just want to get through this level yeah. i don't need to have the guy kill me 25 times in a day and i know some people um, I like to watch the people that play it on hard, but I don't. I want to play a game and enjoy it and go my own route. And um, so, yeah, that is the um, but the strategy guide, I think, is a lost art. And I'm really happy that they uh, uh, they're still doing the Zelda one. Two, two bits on strategy guides real quick. One is what I think when I was in like third grade or fourth grade or something like that, we were doing book reports and you could choose whatever book you wanted. I convinced my teacher to allow me to do a book report using it was either the Mist strategy guide Ooh. or there was another PC game called Dragon Lord. I think it was called. Um, interesting, like th- sort of like 3D. I-, I don't even know how to describe it. It wasn't a point and click. It wasn't like a F- not an FPS, but like a, it, was it wasn't King's Go- Quest. It wasn't King's Quest. Go look up Dragon Lore. It's bizarre. Anyway. I had the strategy guide for that. But the way they were written, at least in my memory, is they were sort of written uh, as prose, sort of. Like they had a story, a through line, and they would they would tell you how to go from point A to point B in like the fashion of a story. I moved from this place to this place. Mm-hmm. It was sort of had that vibe to it. At least, again, as I remember it, I could be totally wrong, but they allowed me to do it. Second point on the strategy guide is for a familiar game, a game that I loved. And when it came out, I was just, you know totally um, emphatic about was Final Fantasy X for the PlayStation 2. I played through it. I probably played through it, you know, two or three times. But when I was in college, I picked up the strategy guide for it. I don't know where I found it, but I I grabbed the strategy guide for it. And I was like, you know, I'm going to play this the way it sort of tells me to from point A to point B, um, how to get all the legendary weapons or whatever uh, inside of it and just allow it to kind of like coast through this game. Like what's the best, most optimal way to get through this? And it was a very interesting way to play that game. Final Fantasy is more based around like your own like strategy and tact around battles and these mm-hmm. big long um, stories that that take forever and hopefully you pick up you know you grind enough to move to the next point but if you play it as it is you know sort of laid out in those guides it sort of handholds you throughout all this the, the you know everything and ends up making your life much easier but it's interesting to sort of see that sort of when it removes the friction uh, what this playthrough looks like and so every playthrough is can be a little different. No, that's funny. Actually, I was just thinking of Final Fantasy. My dad was a teacher and one day he comes back with a game and it was on, it was on the table or something. And I forget what he told me, or maybe I got the story later or something, but it was Final Fantasy in box with a laminated map, all this stuff in it. And it was like, I was like, this isn't bought. You didn't buy this. Where'd you get this? Like a kid laminated it. And I guess the story was a kid kept bringing in this game into class and kept pulling it out. And like, so my dad took it from him as like a punishment and brought it home. And I go, 
And I didn't ask questions. I was like, I don't know the deal. But I ended up getting Final Fantasy because a kid in his class couldn't stop uh, playing with it. So he, I still have it. I still have the laminated map, which is pristine. Um, because the map wasn't the laminated. confiscated laminated map. Absolutely. Oh, um, and it, the booklet was ridiculous. I still have the original box. It's unreal. But I just always laughed. I was like, oh, man, he uh, to not take NES games out in science class in fifth grade or my dad. Yeah, you heard it here. All those toys that you had confiscated in school, they just went to the, the te- teacher's kids. Uh, yep. That's how it was passed off. All your Tamagotchis yep. uh, have just been passed Absolutely. off to, uh, to the next uh, Absolutely. To the teacher's son. Amazing. You probably listed them through, this is more of a blunt question, if you don't mind, and I think you might have listed a few there, but what are three, like three to five games that have left you in awe that you remember? Um, And again, you might've already said this. Yeah. Zork, the text game. Zork was really fun, which I just played this morning just to remember it a little bit. Um, To warm up for the show. Yeah. I was like, oh, well, yeah, just let me listen some Zork. Let me see if I can remember how to do this. Missed. Um, which was insanely frustrating, but still really cool. It was so different at the time. Mike Tyson's punch out. I just thought the replayability, the learning from your friends about different moves and watching speedrunners now today, um, really like the RNG with it too. Um, watching like how different things are. Mega Man series was a big, really big for me. Mm-hmm. I loved um, that. I can't believe I was so patient with that game. I tried to get like the, <laughs> the like uh, classic edition and I was like, oh, I'm going to roll through some Mega Man tonight. I'm like, I keep dying. Yeah. Um, why did I like this game? What was I like? Oh, right. There's no distractions. And I lived in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Super Mario, obviously the Super Mario Odyssey, I thought was such a rad leap. Um, and then I mentioned earlier Ratchet and Clank. I know my friend likes to make fun of me that it's like kids games, but I thought it was really ingenious with like the different weapons and having to play and different ways of um, upgrading and different ways to beat. It was a little Mega Man-ish, right? With different weapons and making sure you do the right thing. So those were probably it. Off the top of my head, those were ones that, um, oh, and then the last one, maybe not me in awe, but my cousins, I found out that Grand Theft Auto was the, the new one was going to come out three and you could, you had to be 18 to buy it. And I was in New York and I was going to go up and see them and they were in high school, maybe middle school, maybe middle school. I don't even know if they were old enough. Uh-oh. I think it was definitely middle school. And so I, I bought it. I went to GameStop on in Soho and I, I bought it. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to, and I didn't think this through at all i just was like (laughs) this game is like getting a lot of like heat my cousins should play this game i'm like we can play it together i don't know i I didn't i just was like screw it so i bought it brought it up there and they were like tommy did you seriously get us grand theft auto i was like yeah yeah they're like oh my god oh my god oh my god and then all their friends came over because no one could get it of course so they oh, like, man. they were like the popular kids in school because they had it. I thought I was going to get in deep shit that their mom comes up to me and she's like, Tommy, I know that this game isn't right, but they still can't beat the game. And so they haven't asked for a new game in a month and a half. So I'm actually happy that you got this because they can't beat it because of how good it is. And so I didn't get in trouble, even though it's very highly offensive, but they were very cool about it because they couldn't finish it. Like they would finish games in like a week. Like they would just, you know, um, yeah. Anyway. So there is uh, that is the last one that had a very, uh, left, left my cousins in awe because their cousin brought home a very violent and inappropriate game when they weren't allowed to have, or you weren't supposed to buy it. And then it was approved by their parents. 
I mean, not that we have anything to say around it, but like that is sort of the story of, you know, the early nineties of games, right? There were, I think a lot of parents back then didn't, un, didn't know, like they come yeah. home with games and kids would play them. And all of a sudden heads would start turning when they see like mortal, Com- the whole mortal Kombat yeah, controversy yeah, yeah. and like blood and games. And that became a whole big thing. And so ESRB stupid. created, but, um, you know, that was, that was a thing when, when we were young and games weren't as prevalent or popular as they are now is they were sort of our, they felt a bit like our own world because we knew, we knew about them, but the the adults didn't, the grownups didn't in a lot of cases. And so you could get away with things like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm seeing all this blood in this game or whatever it is. So it does feel like your own private little world because you get to see these things that would normally be taboo. Totally. I'll never forget their faces when I showed <laughs> it to them. They're like, how did you get that? I was like, don't worry about it. Amazing. <laughs> and i would just hang out with them for hours and just play and i don't know i just i've always like recently i'll just say recently too i was with my sister's kids nephew they're 10 and 13 and we're playing Fortnite, and they kind of chuckled when i picked up the controller and i was like you guys playing Fortnite? let's 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 roll they didn't know on old man yeah and i was i have 120 plus hours on Fortnite, so i was like (laughs) let's Let's go. And then the other, their other 10 year old friends in the chat were all like, look at that. Your uncle, your uncle's going to play Fortnite. I smoked three people instantly. And my friend requests from all four of them showed up on my switch. That's and right. I was like, that, that's what I'm talking about. So got it. Noobs. So Amazing. it was just, it's being able to, I think, connect with an audience of younger and then learn, like ask them questions while they're playing. I asked so many questions when my cousins were playing Grand Theft Auto. I asked so many questions when my nephews were playing Fortnite and why, and even the music in that, right? Mm -hmm. There's never going to give you up by Rick Astley as like an emote. Like there's all these things that it's fun to ask them questions, which I've always wanted to do from the get-go from watching someone you know, with code or anything like that. So I get to ask questions while I sit there and learn. And that's just as enjoyable as, as, as playing. Cause I want to know what they're experiencing, which is sometimes similar. And then you learn a lot. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I'd be so curious to hear, I need to get some like younger, a younger generation on this show, because I'm super curious about what it is that they experience. Like they have been born into an era where games are prevalent and, you know, they have all this back catalog that they can go into just like music. You know, you can explore all the, the, the cuts from, back then, but they are just leaping into it where it's the norm. Like this is uh, what the world is. And so many people play these things and interact totally. with these worlds. Like, what is that like growing up um, where it's, you know, not frowned upon? I mean, well, again, maybe it is in some circles, but not as frowned upon, not taboo. It's just the norm. Right. Totally. Looking forward, like, again, you, you are emphatic about this stuff. And again, I knew you were because <laughs> our text threads, you're sending me all kinds of stuff about, you know, Game Boys and, and Mario Kart and all this. But man, you're deeper than I, than I thought, Tom. You've been, high, you've been holding out on me. What are you looking forward to um, uh, with video games in, in the future? Like, what excites you about where games are going? I'm, I, I'll bring it up again. The open world stuff, I really hope it has a shift. It's not just like go search for shit and then go do another task and go search for another thing and go over here. Do you think Tears of the Kingdom is like the, the best example of that right now? Or are there other examples that you feel are... I mean, solid examples of open world. Yeah, I mean, I just I think they all there are. And if it's if, if it's Horizon, if it's uh, Assassin's Creed, like those, like it's all just like Witcher 3. Like I get it. Like you're in this story and you're experiencing it. I just think 
they're like Red Dead Redemption 2 was probably the one that I really liked that broke out of it because yes, you can go hunt for bison and do that, but there was all these things that you could do that the NPCs were more, um, I guess, a little bit more dynamic and a little bit more interesting of this won't be there. And it gave a little bit more unknown. And I think something like God of War, which I played all the God of Wars, the last one, Ragnarok, felt like a movie that just happened to have some fighting. Mm. And it just led you. And I know there's, oh, go over here. But literally, anytime you went the wrong way, it was like, don't forget to search. You know, and it's like, no shit, I'm trying. So I, I really hope the future of the open world there's more of a way that they're able to balance between helping a new player and then also helping someone that wants a little bit more. And that's maybe the HUD, right? What mm -hmm. they show on the screen or the map. Um, but I just think it's it's way too much of uh, that. So I really like when someone's um, like a company like Nintendo that's doing something simple, repeatable, memorable. If it's Mario Party or Mario Kart or things like that, that can capture. I hope another company like that captures that same spirit and these AAA games become a little bit more weird. Katamari Damacy, like I love that game where you just roll shit up. That was on PlayStation 2, and I know there's probably one for PlayStation 4 or 5. Um, but that was a super There's one on Google now, actually. Yeah, there is. Did you see the Google thing? <laughs> I did, yeah. I sent it to someone, and he goes, thank you. Um, I was in a meeting, and I missed my question because I was just rolling up the fucking Google Chrome page. So I, I think there is there's that, and the ability to understand the world through playing. And we're told to play games for fun. And I think there's an opportunity as we get into VR and AR and there's a way for to learn a little bit more. And there's ways that it can be a little bit more um, forward thinking from like a just a, a culture standpoint um, that, that there's a play involved, but there's also a lot of learning. Um, I mean, pilots learn on video games, right? When they're trying to learn how to yeah. a new plane. So I feel like there's more in that realm. And then I like to see where music goes. Um, because right now you can play whatever you want. You can have Spotify connected. You can listen to music while you're playing. I would love to see different integrations where it's not just like playing a concert in Fortnite or having a like a skin. Like I just think there's something else um, about music and gaming because those have always intersected. And I just find I think there's going to be something more. So shitty open worlds. Uh, I want to learn how to play or learn more in games. Please be another Nintendo and music will be, I think there'll be another shift in music within games. Hmm. Interesting. That's awesome. Uh, I, one thing I want to say about, I guess, shitty open worlds and, and Nintendo and that repeatability that it's sort of a light bulb moment in my head. You know, we talked about Super Mario being like the, the theme being repeatable over and over and over, but you never fatigue. There's something about uh, Tears of the Kingdom as I'm playing it right now. I played Breath of the Wild and I really enjoyed it, but I beat it and or quote unquote beat it. Probably put maybe 40 to 60 hours in the game somewhere around there, but I wasn't, I never felt like super satisfied with it. it was, I saw the, the, the genius in it. It was an amazing game, but I never felt like super satisfied. Um, but playing Tears of the Kingdom, I'm probably only 15 hours in or so right now, but the way I'm playing it is I'm not following really the, the story. I don't care. I mean, the story is kind of cool, but I'm not outwardly seeking the main quests. What I'm sort of doing is allowing it to sort of guide me through the world by itself, similar to how Disneyland guides you through the park, through sight lines. You, you see something in the distance and you're curious about it, so you want to go 
check that out. Totally. And that is sort of without heavy handedly telling you go search behind that rock or go do X, Y, and Z. You're carried through that game by what is in your line of sight typically all the time. There's usually something on the screen somewhere that will draw you to it and you'll go see what that is. And then as soon as you're done with that, you'll be looking at the next thing. You go, oh, that's interesting. And you'll want to go move to that. And the other brilliant thing is those tasks, those, those, if it's a mission or a place you want to go, they can take you 20 minutes to an hour to do if you're going after a dungeon, or they can literally take you two to five minutes. You know, there are moments where I like, I will have just a couple minutes to play or pick something up and I'll pick up Tears of the Kingdom, a huge open world game, which typically I would never touch if I only had a few minutes to play. But with that game, I can touch it for just a moment and feel like I can accomplish something. I can get something done, some small little menial thing. And it makes me, it has like a, you know, that dopamine hit or that reward. And you're like, oh, great, cool. I, I, I got in this world. I got to experience the world and I actually achieved something in this world and I can put it down. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's not being heavy handed at all. It's that sort of, and it repeats itself over and over and over back to the Mario thing. Um, it has this repeatability that doesn't fatigue, feels very nice to be in there. And it's sort of this new type of open world um, that we're, that we're look, you know, beginning to, to understand and discover, right? Yeah. No. And I think too, I, I like how you describe that because the, the game does give you opportunity to experiment too with now with the fusing of items yeah. and being able to solve things in many ways, which people are really, you know, getting into, which is so rad to watch. So yeah, I think, I think there's a, I think there's, I think there are other people that are trying it. I think there's some indie developers. I love looking at other games that people are doing that aren't on the beaten path or that, that aren't at the usual, you know, AAA level and just to try to um, experiment and, and see what they're doing. It feels, it is very like music for me, like ex learning it, seeing what they do. How did they compose that? How did they put that together? And then how, how does it feel, right? Because music is also feeling. So there, I think there's way more similarities with this and probably why I'm interacting. Just like I have my vinyl collection, I have the strategy guides um, or I have all the games that I had. So it's it's very, I, I think they're think they're mutually exclusive. And there's obviously with music, there's uh, concept albums, which I know you're a fan of. Mm -hmm. And so there, there's that too, where you can sit there and, and, and learn about more about the story. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's super fun. And I, I think it is what I used to say is it is my non music, even though there's similarities to them, it is my non music. I'm going to turn off my music brain. I am not going to be Tom from washed up emo. I'm not answering questions about what band is emo or not. I'm going to play X game. Or we're going to play Tetris connected. And I'm just going to sit there and zone out and, you know, play that. Um, and I, I, I like that. You need that. That's uh that's, that's awesome. This, chat is more than I, I thought it would be. No, no offense by any means, but you, you, you brought it, dude. Um, I told been, you I fucking yeah. like video games. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. We, I may have to start wrapping up, but I do, I'm going to put you on the spot one more time and hopefully this is okay. But what are some bands people should be checking out right now? What's, what's at the top of your playlist? Oh my God. It's going to sound outdated in a minute. Uh, yeah, well, by the time this comes out, this is all going to be very old news. I guess, um, there's a band called Vulture Feather, which is ex-members of the band called Don Martin Three. They're around from 93 to 96, and they were from, uh, where were they from? Florida, like St. Augustine. And they were like scream emo, but like not the hair in the face scream, like more like chaotic. And they have this band called Vulture Feather that just came out, and it's amazing. It's ominous. It's droning. It's depressing, but replayability. I sit in traffic. I have a darts league on Monday nights. 
And I, I realize what stuff I listen to in that drive, which involves going to the valley opposite during traffic. I find out what things can repeat. And this record made the list. So uh, Vulture Feathers is, is really cool. mention i'm doing a lot of research right now with like 2000 stuff and 90 stuff so i'm probably stuck in uh, the past but um i did like the last death cab that was fine i feel like the acoustic version was was better this you know it's you know what's funny what i just found i just found footage of them talking about what songs hey mercedes should cover like backstage oh, wow. there's photos of because everyone gives me shit when they say like death cab for cuties not email i was like bro they played Michigan Fest. They're down with all these bands. Like, so I have this footage of them nerding out about emo bands that I can't wait to post. I just found it like a couple weeks ago. So that that was really cool. So, so yeah, the, quick, quick yeah. sidebar on Death Cab. Uh, I didn't realize this, but I found it out the other day. The drummer, Michael Score, he he was the drummer on Photo Booth, which was right before uh, Transatlanticism where they broke, right? And uh, he, oh, and he did, I'm looking at it now. He did the uh, Forbidden Love EP and this Ability EP, but he left the band. I guess there were creative differences, let's call it. Um, but he is the lead designer of Forge, which is the tool that that the Halo team uses to build Halo. That's awesome. I love death, that death cab it's, to halo in one move. Yeah, no, it, it's, it is funny to watch. Like there's some people that there's a guy in emo that works at a small publisher, video game publisher. And we've spoken. There's a lot of people that intersect this world. And I do think it's because of those similarities between music and gaming and what those endorphins and what things it, it, it affects you wise. Um, there are so many similarities. So that's really cool. Yeah. There's definitely when you find music people in uh, punk, like I did for Activision when I was working with Scott, like he's this punk guy and he got it. And it was just, you know, we were sharing records a couple of weeks ago. We were just like sending records back and forth to each other. So it, it, it continues. And I think being able to connect with people on multiple levels. And when someone understands that you're listening to them or that you're understanding them, like when my cousin's telling me about Fortnite and what he's doing, I want to hear that because I might learn something. And I think sometimes that get lost when you're in music for too long, or if you're been playing video games forever, you get really old man yells at cloud. And I've never felt that. Um, I've just always been like, what is next? What's happening? And it's how I've stayed relevant in work. It's how I've stayed relevant that my cousins or my nephews think I'm cool. Um, they do. They do think I'm cool. And sure they, they, that's what uh, they tell you. They totally do. No, they were like, <laughs> my sister was telling me that he was telling like other kids like, no, no, oh, no, no. So my bad. uncle, my uncle knows Fortnite. No, no, no. He knows all this stuff. Oh, um, that's sick. That's like, actually, the, that's what you want to be. That's, that's what you want to strive to achieve. If you're not two, the uncle who works at Nintendo, you're at least the uncle who knows how to play Fortnite. Two things happen with them. One is I found out the older cousin was into coding. And so I asked him about a Raspberry Pi and he looked at me and he was like, you know what a Raspberry Pi is? And I was like, let's go upstairs. Show me what you got. And so he showed me all his coding stuff and he does all this. And then they're out playing basketball 
And they had, they were confused on like some stuff. So I showed them a couple things on basketball. And now my sister told me that they're like getting really good at it. And they both said, Tommy showed us. So I've got those cards. If all goes to shit, I can at least um, have those things on my tombstone. Solid uncle cred. I'm trying, but all this to say, I think this idea of a show is great because this is a release. This is a, an escape for people, but that escape doesn't always basement by yourself. You're with people. You're with friends. You are with people that um, love something that you love and you're able to connect on multiple levels with, 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 with people. And that's why I think gaming is really rad to connect with people on because there's so many ways to go. PC, console, handheld, different types of games. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's been a way that I've been able to connect with a lot of people and it's out of love, not just like, oh, I need to know video games. It's just, I wanted to. I can't wrap it up better than that, Tom. So we're going to leave it that, at that. That's amazing. You brought it home. Thank you, sir. Where can people find you if they want to hear more from you? I know you've got a couple outlets. Washedupemo.com has everything from the podcast to uh, playlisting. Um, you can find me on all the social media um, washed up emo and it's a fun place. And then is this band emo.com. You can type in any band, anything, and it'll tell you if it's emo or not. And it's completely fake. And it's a joke. <laughs> Disclaimer. This is a joke. You heard it here, everybody. I, I still, I love that website. It's amazing. Um, thank you for setting that up. Thank you for all that you do with washed up emo. You, you, your podcast, the love fest here, but your, your podcast was such a, uh, I don't know, stumbling across it was, um, just do you remember it, it what year so you stumbled across? Well, it had been working in podcasts at the time, so it had been 2013, 2014, somewhere around there. That's crazy. Yeah. Somebody told me about it. Um, and I was like, oh my God, all my like just seeing the list of of folks that you had interviewed was like, these are all the bands and people that I listened to in yeah, high school. Yeah. And that was a part of me that I think I had left a bit um as I was pushing my my professional career sort of lost sight of a lot of that music. And so being able to like go back to high school and go back to like what I was listening to then and see where it's going, you know, how it's progressing and and still moving forward, I think was really eye opening for me. So I thank you for bringing all the guests you have onto the show. And it's really been a, a cool, a cool resource and, thank and you for me to listen to. Because I have to explain what it is so many times. People still don't get it. I know it's, so, it's kind of like game, like emo is kind of like games in a way. Like when I say emo, they're like emo, maybe because it's kind of what you described. Like there's these five waves of it. Right. And we're currently still in it. People remember that third wave a lot, but there's the, the I'm more like second, I think, but you know, it, it was still kind of an ambiguous title. What is emo? What does that word mean? It wasn't the same thing with video like games. Punk or, exactly. When you say video games, people are like video games, you nerd. And it's like, no, like video games are not like what they, what you're thinking they were, right? Like these havens of geeks that would go to an arcade and sit around forever or sit at their computers. Like there's so many experiences, like it's so vast. You have, I mean, the things that we, it's a, it's a, it's a crime that we call them video games to begin with. Right. Because that's in a lot of cases, they're not even a game. Like it's just an experience for you to see. Yeah. Like city skylines, like doing city skylines and doing something like that and building it's like Sim city on crack. Yeah. Right? Dear Esther was like, there's just a game that you walk through and it's basically telling you a story or reading you poetry and playing it, you know, playing music until you reach the end. There's no actual interaction other than you're walking around this Island and it's just talking to you. And, and it, so yeah, there's like, it's, it's, I think a crime that they're just called video games. I really do think the similarities of music and video games is more than people realize and that there's a misunderstanding of a lot of it. And I think the more that these are expressed and, and, and discussed openly that they can hopefully understand. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Cool, man. I'm glad we came to that. Twitter handles, 
Washed up emo. Mastodon handles. Washed up emo. Washed up emo. So, but yes, washed up emo everywhere. And I can't stop it. So until someone, uh, until the money runs out, I'll be doing that forever. Don't stop ever. It's great. Thank you so much for doing it. I know that the scene thanks you and the culture thanks you. And uh, and I thank you for it. So, and thank you for, uh, for joining me on Why Button. Hell yeah. Thanks for having me. Honestly, I think Tom needs his own show about video games. I was completely floored hearing him go deep on his love for video games and his great takes to boot. My thanks to Tom wants more for taking the time to join me on the show. Wow. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. The easiest thing to do is to share the website whybutton.online. It includes links to most podcast platforms. I'd also appreciate a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever supports that kind of thing. If you want to get in touch, ask questions, or recommend guests, feel free to reach out to whybuttonpodcast at gmail.com or on Mastodon at whybutton at mastodon.social. You can also find me on Mastodon at kylestar at mastodon.social. I'm also on threads at underscore kylestar. This episode was produced by the wonderful and talented previous guest to the show, AJ Filari. Our theme song was written by Childstar, who's me, featuring my friend Scott Wilkie. It's called On the Same Page, and you can find it on all streaming platforms. Thanks again for listening to Y Button, and remember, when you press Y, ask why. Why?